Hey, Take 3 listeners, it is Jordan here, and I first wanted to say that we here at Take 3 know that there are other podcasts you could be listening to during this period of isolation, but we do thank you for choosing ours. Uh, I'm sure that you are well aware of the state of the world at the moment, and there's a lot of what-ifs and unknowns and uh, how-do-I-know-what-to-trust happening right now. And I wanted to offer just a bit of relief before we start this episode. Uh, I am an avid listener of the podcast called This Week in Virology, or TWIV for short. Uh, And if you're looking for a trustworthy source, TWIV releases weekly episodes covering updates with COVID-19. They pride themselves on putting data first and sort of dismantling conspiracy theories if they aren't backed up. And they have a batch of experts from the field every week to deliver current events. Now, the podcast usually focuses on discussing like current events with epidemiology and virology. But over the last few weeks, they've, you know, obviously uh, solely covered the coronavirus. Uh, I trust them to provide the facts and recommendations on how to navigate this difficult time. And you should definitely uh, give them a listen and you should tell them we sent you. Again, they are This Week in Virology. Uh, I'm pretty sure they're on all major podcast apps, uh, but they're also online at microbe.tv slash twiv. Again, that's microbe.tv slash T-W-I-V. Uh, hope that helps. And uh, now I'll stop talking so you guys can listen to the episode. Thanks for your support, guys. It's just a guy thing. I, I don't really know. Guys like to hurt their friends feelings and put dicks on things i don't know hey there i'm jordan and i'm nick we're just two regular guys who love talking about film and now we'd like to talk to you we decided to break down our discussions into three parts because everyone loves a gimmick we discuss our expectations for a film before we watch it that's take one we give our immediate thoughts following the film that's take two And finally, we research the film at length to prepare for an informed and in-depth discussion. And that's take three. So if you love film even half as much as we do, join in on the conversation. This is Take Three, a movie podcast. Take one. They should make a a remix of um, the Shut Up and Drive song. And it should just be like, shut up and die, die, die. Shut up and die. Why? I don't know. Like, as an insult to someone? <laughs> Make it happen. I'm going to call her up. <laughs> re re. So, um, how are you dealing with the coronavirus? Um, I am doing what I'm best at, which is staying at home and doing nothing. Way to go. I'm doing, yeah. Doing what I've been practicing for 26 years. I'm glad that um, you are able to stay home from work. That makes me yes, happy rather than I am. you having to go out. Because we got people that still have to go to work because their jobs are like for the government and stuff. Yes. And um, I'm like... And also nurses and doctors in retail yeah. and grocery store, like very, very thankful for yes. all of you. Yes, yes, yes. The guy who delivered Krispy Kreme donuts to my house the other day. Hey, lucky you. I appreciate you. (laughs) I will be calling you soon. (laughs) My people will be in touch. (laughs) What movie are we doing today, Jordan? Oh, I don't remember. (laughs) So long ago. You picked this. I know I did. Uh, We're going to do Stand By Me, a classic.
This movie for me was one that my older cousins and my sister would always talk about and loved. They would watch it a lot. They were big fans of it. And um, finally, I guess when I was deemed old enough to watch it, which is probably way younger than I should have been. Um, <laughs> like my mom had like very little rules on what I was and wasn't allowed to watch. I remember I was like 10 and she took me to see 8 Mile with my cousins and my sister. I was like, I don't know what's going on. I mean, like, there's sex in that movie. I have no idea. <laughs> it was a movie that I was way too young to see. I remember watching it, kind of thinking that I was like going to be afraid of it. And there's really, it's not really scary or anything like that. But I certainly, a lot of things went over my head. The movie Stand By Me is based on a story called The Body. And it was part of a compilation of stories called Different Seasons. Mm-hmm. And it's a great book. We've both read it. I've not read it. You've not read Different Seasons? I have not read it. I uh, I bought you it, and I thought we both read it at the same time. No. So what happened was I had it, and I brought it to Costa Rica with me with the intention of reading a book in Costa Rica. I did not finish it. I got halfway through the first story, which I think is Shawshank Redemption, uh, or Rita Hayworth in the Shawshank Redemption. Um, and... I just, I'd never got around to finishing it. So, oh, well, you should read the body because it's good. I, yeah, I plan on it. No, you won't. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, I remember it through the lens of a kid. It'll be interesting to kind of see it older. Like, even though, even though I have seen it since I was a child, when you are a kid, you kind of maybe relate to them differently than now. Right. I remember, I feel like the first time I saw this movie was with you. It was, I don't want to say recently when I saw it, but it was, you know, within the last five years that I've seen it. Yeah. All I remember are train tracks and leeches. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really about it. So this will be an interesting watch. What's really interesting about this is the performances from the kids. I mean, and just who the kids grew up to be. Yeah. Nostalgia's hitting. I do remember it fondly. Like, I do remember enjoying it. It's no secret that we love Stephen King here. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is our, what, Third, fourth movie that we... Okay, so Shining is episode six. Chapter one was episode 19? That's disgusting. That's so gross. What? (laughs) Your just ability to retain that kind of stuff. I I can't do that. Day two. I... I like that movie less, watching it now. Really? Yeah. I think it embodies everything that I hate about uh, heteronormativity and straight white men. (laughs) In a way that I didn't really recognize the first time I watched it. I think, like, having grown up, A, gay, and B, with two very straight brothers and heterosexual father, I don't know, like, I don't like it when guys call other guys pussies, and I, part of me really hates that this, like, everyone has something to prove in this movie, and it's all about, like, dick measuring, and who's the biggest and baddest, and who can withstand the most, And I just hate that. I really, I hate that. But I think it's a good lens to see uh, youth through. I think this movie explores that a lot. I think it explores uh, like childhood innocence. I think it's interesting that not a single one of these groups of boys went looking for the body to help solve this case or bring peace to the family. Uh, It was always for a reward. It wasn't you know to it was to save the day and be and be rewarded for it like they were like oh we're going to be in the papers we're going to get this prize but it wasn't until the younger boys saw the body that they kind of had like mixed feelings about it and in the end they were the ones who were like no we're going to do this respectfully we're going to you know put the blanket over it and we're we're going to 
we're going to do this the right way. And I feel like exploring innocence and um, growing up and belonging through that lens, I think makes sense. I think what drew me to this movie as a child was like the aspect of it being probably a little bit too mature for the age that I was. Like even though these were 12 year olds, they, they talked and behaved like they were at least older than I was when I was seeing it. Like I went to, you know, a religious school, like my friends just didn't talk like that when I was 12. You know what I mean? Right. And so I think it was interesting. They felt older than me, even though they might've even been younger than me when I saw this movie. Right. And I think that's another note that I wrote down is that this was in a generation where um, I kind of think of like 50 and six at this point, probably like 70 or 80 year olds being like, Oh yeah, back in my day, we didn't wear seatbelts or like we could just go off and, and hitchhike and do whatever. And it's like, well, <laughs> and they get on us for like, Oh, everyone's on their phones right now. Everyone's being too safe and offended. And it's like, we're kind of trying to all survive here. So I think that's kind of where my hesitation with this movie came from because it's like I really don't identify with that generation. You are pointing out my main defense of this storyline is that the story takes place like the novella I think is in 1960 and the movie in 1959. That's when my parents were born like yeah. It's definitely a different time like even when this movie was made I don't know that that was the way people behaved. Times had changed even since when this movie was made. Well when was this movie made? Um, I think it's was it like the 86? Yeah, yeah, 86. Gotcha. The reason that it's hard for me to identify with these guys, yeah, sure, they're straight, hyper-masculine, yeah. but I'm way removed from a world. Like, I, I just didn't live in that world. Yeah. You know what I mean? We, we, we don't know how it was to live back then. And Stephen King does. And Stephen King, this is one of his more autobiographical yeah. stories. This is the one that he says he actually he did see a dead kid or something like that, like when he was younger. The, s- the story goes, I, I'll have to relook into this. I don't know if he saw someone die. I feel like the many times we've talked about Stephen King, it's probably been told already, but um Probably, yeah. I don't I don't know if he saw someone die or if he uh just saw a, a dead body but it was an experience that he says he doesn't remember but apparently you know from stories from his family yeah he, he did um and i think when a lot of people ask him like you know what is your inspiration like how do you come up with these really fucked up scary things and he's just like i don't really know but it could be this thing i i just i don't know i've blocked it out um, yeah, but yeah i was going to mention the same thing that this is probably like clearly this is drawing from you know an autobiographical standpoint each of them doesn't fit in for some reason. They're dealing yeah. with the way that this world is oppressing them at that moment in their lives. So in that regard, I do think it is relatable and somewhat timeless if you can say, okay, yeah, sure, I didn't behave exactly like that. But yes, I – This was a product of its time. Well, no, I mean, I, I mean, sure. But like, uh, I guess my point is that it's relatable in a sense that, yeah, there have been times in my life where I wish that I could kind of like not have a reputation. Uh, I see. And there have been times where I have felt like I am not the ideal kid. And there have been times where I feel like I don't fit in with a group of friends. And there's been times where I've felt like I had no idea what I was going to do and the the things that I was interested in and good at were not going to get me anywhere in life. And those are all themes that exist 
throughout this movie, I, I pretty much instantly like these four. And I'm rooting for this group of kids, even though they are joking and being mean to each other and all that kind of like that's that is probably the way that they talked to each other, even though it wasn't the way that we talked to our friends when we were little. Yeah. Well, I think, well, so, okay. <laughs> I think what I need to do is kind of set aside my own personal, what's the word I'm looking for? Biases. Sure. Or my, like my own personal relationship to, to like how my experience are relatively similar to this because like my little brother jokes all the time about fucking his mom's friends. And like, that is something that I'll never understand, but it's like, I see a lot of my family in these boys and it's something that like, I don't know. It's, it's, I get it. I understand it, but I have to put aside my dislike for that kind of behavior to really see what the movie is trying to say, I think. And that might take a rewatch or that might take, you know, some research for take three, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I think that this movie at its core is about friendship and childhood and the experiences you have with your kid and how they would shape you later. And, it, yeah. you know, it, it has this kind of bookend of Gordy, like, kind of telling this story. And he's obviously grown up to be pretty well adjusted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there does there is sort of like a light at the end of the tunnel for some people. But it's also, I can also imagine that it's a, uh, cautionary in a sense where one of the most endearing qualities about Chris is that he steps in and will break up fights and is, is looking out for these people or whatever gets him killed. You know what I mean? It, so it, I don't think this movie is trying to particularly say like one thing. Yeah. And yeah, because it doesn't have like one moral it's driving home, it might be kind of hard to pinpoint and just you, then you just kind of focus on the fact that all these boys are, Again, you're like measuring dicks. Yeah. I don't like, I mean, I obviously we're not supposed to, but I don't like any of the older teen characters. They're all pretty awful. Well, I think it's, it's to me, it was an example of like how, how important learning as a child is because who knows, maybe if, you know, the roles were, were, wow, if the roles were reversed and, you know, those older kids you know, or saw a dead body and kind of realized that, you know, it should be respected and that kind of thing. Like they wouldn't be so tough or, you know, such hard asses. Like it's, there's a very big contract because in a lot of ways, the two groups are very similar. Like I see, I see a lot of similarities between the two groups and what sets them apart is how they learn from experiences. And I think it's too late for the older group, obviously, And that's what I got from this movie, at least. No, I totally agree. I think this movie, there are points where it's like too similar to it. So that's, yeah, I feel like, I feel like that's less its fault and more of just a very stylistic Stephen King-ism. Like, do you, do you feel like that's the movie's fault or Stephen King's fault? In Chapter 2 was made uh, last year, and this movie was made in 1986. I feel like they could have done some things to make it somewhat different. Okay, so there's no denying that these stories have similar aspects, like the fact that Stephen King has written like 20 stories that have writers in them, and a lot of his lead characters are writers. It is clearly a device for him to put himself in that story. Mm-hmm. The way... It ends where he's, it's actually like he's writing it and he's writing oh, standby or he's writing the body or whatever. Right, um, right. What I liked about the first It movie 
it's because it reminded me a lot of that movie. But now I just, I don't know, seeing them rather close together, I'm like, they're created by the same guy and they have very similar leads with Gordy and Bill. And I think at the end of the day, it's about young kids, preteens in the 60s slash 80s. Yeah, but Um, like also it's a matter of like, Trying to repeat your, I don't know. I, don't know. I mean, he's Stephen like, King's I fault? love him. He's my favorite author, but like, it's still. But are you saying that's Stephen King's fault or that's no. the movie maker's fault? No, I think it's a matter of like acknowledging uh, that your your stories are a little bit redundant. Is that what you mean? Or maybe some of your characters, or just even maybe yeah. some of like the beats in it, chapter two. Uh, I think it all boils down to the fact that like the more I think about it, chapter two, the more I find more and more flaws in it. Yeah. But that's okay. I had forgotten about a lot of the cast, including John Cusack is in this. Yeah, that was really cool. He was a very young John Cusack. We brought up how John Cusack was in 1408 and Cell. I like it when people are in a bunch of different Stephen King movies. I don't know why, but I think that's always interesting. Like with Kathy Bates yeah, in yeah. Misery and Dolores Claiborne. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think of other ones. Uh <laughs> I'll I'll think of more. <laughs> like I'm sure that there are a ton more. So we could talk about uh, Castle Rock, the series, and how you know uh, Sarsgaard and Sissy Spacek are in it. Yeah, neither of the two Stephen King movies that we've done so far take place in Castle Rock, and I want to really learn more about why he sets all of his story. You know what I mean? Like the stories there and stuff like that. I don't think I've ever looked that up. Well, this one was in Oregon. I think I realize now that I think I just always assumed that Castle Rock would have been in Maine because it's Stephen King, but they brought up Oregon a lot this movie. Should I look it up? If you want to, yeah. I just know that there's, because to prep for the, I didn't end up watching it because of this, but to prep for the Castle Rock series, uh, I looked up a list of his books that were in Castle Rock, and it's quite a few. It's like, it's a ton of his books. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, Too um, many to read before I watch the series, which is why I haven't. So <laughs> we'll see. Oh, is that what's stopping stopping you from watching like, the show? Is because you read want to read all those books? I don't want to read all of them, but I'd like to read more, or at least the ones that have like the biggest references in in the show. Gotcha. Castle Rock is part of a Stephen King's fictional main typography and provides the setting for a number of his novels, novellas, and short stories. First appeared in The Dead Zone in 1979, later in the novels It, Dr. Sleep, Revival, Evelation, (laughs) Evelation, Jesus Christ, Elevation. (laughs) Oh, shit, look, okay. Some changes were made to the plot of the film, including changing the setting from 60 to 59, like I had said, in the location of Castle Rock from Maine to Oregon. Which Thank is strange. You. Why would they do that? I don't know. Yeah, but that good good catch. I I, mean, I just heard Castle Rock and I was like, oh, I don't know. I did catch that though, and I, I it made me happy to hear that like this was one of those like this was a Castle Rock story. Um Yeah. Yeah, so I'll look into more Castle Rock information for take three. But yeah, as far as uh, Take Two goes, I mean, I just having watched that over again, I know that you like it less. I think I'm, I mean, I, I understand that it had, like the characters have problems, but I think it's a very 
a well-made movie. I really like the four key performances. Yeah. I think that it is a true, true, true loss, obviously for tons of reasons, but for his acting, I'm sure he would have been an amazing adult actor that we lost River Phoenix. Um, Cause he's really freaking good in this movie. Yeah. I feel like this movie was sort of made for him. Like his character. I mean, like he steals the show. Yeah. Like yeah. this wasn't this wasn't um, Gordy's story. Even though Gordy does have like a compelling drama, and he lost his brother, so did Bill. Lost his brother has a compelling narrative, yeah. but is not the star of the movie. You know what I mean? Great I mean, yeah. not really. Bill it, Denbro in the movie. It, yeah, absolutely correct. In it, obviously, once you've seen both of them, the storyline is it feels very much like it's Richie's story once you've seen both movies you know what i mean in, in chapter one and two like i feel like mm. richie is the the heart of that story i would argue that for the second chapter i don't know about the first one though well i just mean like because of the fact that they go back and kind of retroactively put in things that that happened during those stories i mean i i don't know that's how i feel just with the first one i would say if you ignore chapter two which i would love to i think it's more bev's story yeah i agree yeah. Um, and even even Ben, you know, more than Bill. So I, I totally get that. Like, he definitely has stories wherein, like, a group of kids, they're sure there's the leader, and sure he puts himself in his stories, but it never really feels like it's some sort of vanity purpose because of the yeah. fact that he surrounds himself with characters he's got to know are much more interesting than the character that he, you know, the surrogate Stephen King character. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. So I will be uh, doing my damnedest uh, with, you know, this plethora of free time that I have now to, uh, to read this story before we do take three. I think that'll be my research. So I think, I don't think it took me very long. I mean, I'm not like a speed reader or anything like that. Like I probably don't read at a uh, very fast level. Like if you were going to, chart how fast I read. I'm probably below average um, just so I can try to retain everything because I'm worried I'll I'll lose track or whatever. But I don't think it took me very long to read that story. Yeah, I'll have um, to double check how many pages it is. But uh, It is good. And it, it's very, very similar to this. There are only like a couple of things that I think are different. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that I wanted to point out is that uh, the story that John Cusack is like, hey, at the dinner table, he's like, Gordon wrote a a story or whatever you guys should read it. It's really good. You know what I'm talking about? Like at the dinner table. Yeah. Yeah. So you read that story in the book and I like, I would never let my parent, well, I probably would, but like, um, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't want my parents to read that. That's a fucked don't, up story. Yeah. I'm not going to tell me. you, I won't tell yeah. you, but like, it's not the kind of story that you're like, Hey mom, I wrote a story. That's really funny considering some of the stories that you've come up with and then proceeded to show yeah. your parents. <laughs> Actually, my mom and I were talking about this the other night. Um, I don't even remember how it came up, but just about the the crazy shit that I've made her read. And she's like, the one that I'll never forget is the one where the mortician has to operate on Santa Claus. And I'm like, wow, that's a really like uh, a weird one line summation of that story. But it. That's also one of your more tame stories. Yeah. You have a story about a tree fucker. You have a story about um, like 
<laughs> people people's dicks getting glued into holes and stuff. And it's that's like, the story about the tree fucker. But yeah, I know I understand. Thing. I like my mom's obviously it's she's not like a mom in the sixties, so I would be afraid to <laughs> you know to show her that. But like it's still got the pie eating story in there. That I knew. That I knew yeah. about. Um, yeah. And it seems like I'm, you have me intrigued now because now I'm, because I'm a huge fan of Chuck Palahniuk and like that sounds very Chuck Palahniuk y. And, uh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued. Take three. That was the clap to end all claps. Yeah, it was. That was nice. I did it with my ass. <laughs> I don't even understand what ass clapping means, but it's basically like your ass is so big that, that like when you, shake it 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 like claps oh okay okay I, I don't know why i thought it might be like two asses clapping together like you needed someone to help you i don't know that's how babies are made <laughs> i did have something that i wanted to say and it makes me very curious about how i communicate in real life because in real life i don't have a record of anything that i can listen to again and I think I said in take two, I said, my brother talks about fucking his mother's friends all the time. And I meant to say he talks about fucking his friend's mothers all the time. I think it's just it's just a guy thing. I, I don't really know. Guys like to hurt their friend's feelings and put dicks on things. I don't know. Yep. I remember listening to that and thinking, like, I wonder if that's what he meant. It is. Well, good. I'm glad you cleared that up. That concludes my weekly segment of um, let me fix what I said before. Um, Shut up. <laughs> so this is take three. So we're going to talk about research and things we thought about later. And the more I think about this movie, the more it becomes apparent that there's, like, a key theme of – the idea that like nothing lasts forever, whether that be innocence or friendship or even life, honestly. And in take two, we talked about how these children don't behave the way we did when we were younger. And like now I, I think it has less to do with the fact that there are straight guys growing up in the 50s and more to do with us as the audience. Maybe it's about checking our privilege a little bit and acknowledging that the two of us grew up in households more stable than the four of these boys, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, Stephen King saddles each of these kids with a problem that we can identify with, but in an environment that we can't. An environment that seems to force kids to grow up too fast and often points them in the wrong direction. So yeah, these characters may be off-putting, to some at least. And But by the end of the film, I, you can see this like immense growth from each of them because in each of their own ways, they realized how finite and fleeting their existence is. And I think this film is a commentary on what that can do to someone and what the, what the rumor of that kind of thing can do to someone. Totally. That's one of, it's actually a lot of my points is that, uh, and that's why I love doing this is because the more I, get to know a movie and how it was made, I think the better I can appreciate it. And I know in the beginning of take two, I, I said, you know, I wasn't too thrilled with it. And I call it the nightcrawler effect. I think it was Jake Gyllenhaal who plays the reporter. Yeah. Um, and I remember you showed me that movie and I could not stand it. I hated that Spectacular movie. I hated it, but I realized I just really hated that character. Yeah. And, uh, 
watching, I'd I really would love to watch it again, just so I can, you know, put on a different set of glasses, uh, and really see it from another perspective. Uh, but in the same way, this movie, I think I, I more disliked the behaviors of the characters and really wasn't really seeing what the real movie was about. And I think the reason why so many people can connect to this movie is whether or not you've had similar grow, like you've grown up in similar ways or um, you've like, I don't know, went off and had adventures or seen a dead body or, you know, yeah. had a group of three friends, um, whether or not you had experiences like that. I think this movie is just so deeply relatable specifically because of that end, like monologue, the whole, I never had friends later on, like the ones I had when I was 12. Yeah. Jesus, does anyone that whole thing, uh, throughout my research, I found another quote that really stuck with me. At some point in your childhood, you and your friends went outside to play together for the last time and no one knew it. And I've seen that on plenty of memes and like it's shared on Facebook all the time. But I think that really, really fits well with this movie. And totally. I think that's like the core point is that everyone has experiences like that. No matter what those experiences are, it's 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 so deeply relatable. And that's why so many people appreciate this movie. And yeah. that's why I can appreciate that movie. Yeah. Okay. So it's take three, and I'm Nick. So I, you know, I got to talk about the money it made. Hi, Nick. This is really interesting, though, because it didn't have a worldwide release. This movie only opened in like 800 and I think they said 48 theaters, 848 theaters, and on a eight million dollar budget, it made 52 million dollars. So Damn. I mean, yeah, it it definitely made its money back, but I just thought it was interesting that it didn't even really get that wide of a release. I mean, in the eighties, there certainly weren't as many theaters as there are now, but I would imagine there'd be more than eight hundred. Maybe I could be wrong. Anyway, um, another thing that was pretty cool about this movie: it was nominated for an Oscar for best adapted screenplay. Do you know what won? I knew uh, the second I said that I knew you were going to ask me that question and I didn't write it down. Give me a second. Okay. A movie that neither of us have ever heard of. It's called a room with the view. Oh my God. I love that movie. Shut up. <laughs> Ruth Prar. Oh, I can't even, I feel bad. Jab Javala. It sounds like I've heard that, that movie title before. I couldn't tell you what it was about though. Yeah, that's okay. Good for them. I'm sure they deserved it, I guess. So I'd be remiss not to mention that Rob Reiner directed this film, who is a brilliant filmmaker and like an iconic actor, to be honest with you. Uh, he directed Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, A Few Good Men, Misery. <laughs> He's great. I remember watching him on All in the Family when I was younger and thinking he was hysterical. Like he even got two Emmys from that. You might know, but for those of you who do not know what All in the Family is, I need to tell you about it. It's basically about this old bigot named Archie Bunker, who in one way or another is like surrounded by all the people he would normally stereotype. Like Rob Reiner plays his unemployed Polish son-in-law. Their neighbors are George and Wheezy Jefferson. The Jeffersons is a spinoff of All in the Family. Okay. So when I was looking it up, I just was interested. I got on a All in the Family kick and a couple of articles – um, we're talking about, you know, does All in the Family hold up? Does it, did it age well? And like they were saying, honestly, yeah, it kind of does. I mean, it still has these same themes. Um, like they tackled all these subjects that felt completely taboo back then. It was pretty groundbreaking, to be honest with you. Uh, huh. Back to Rob Reiner, though. Like I said, oh, no, he directed well, Misery. Huh? No, because I want to go back. I want to look up something. Is it on streaming? Is it like, is it available to watch now? Um, You know, I don't know where I, it might be. Google says it's on Crackle for free. I don't even know what Crackle is. For some reason, I think that has something to do with Sony. 
Yeah, it is. Speaking of TV shows, the one that I'm watching right now is Superstore, and it's hysterical, and I feel like it's slept on. Like, no one is talking about this show, but it is so goddamn funny. For me, having worked in retail for several years, when I was working in retail, it felt like it was too close to home. But now that I'm out of it, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I can enjoy it a little bit more. You just need to watch it. It's just really funny. Okay, can we get back to Rob Reiner? Of course we can. All right. Like I said, he directed Misery, (laughs) which is another King adaptation. But he also, this is pretty cool, he also named his production company Castle Rock Entertainment. No shit. Now, that could be for two reasons. And uh, one of them is because he clearly has an affinity for King's work. The company would go on to produce many more adaptations such as Shawshank Redemption and Dreamcatcher, one really good movie and one really bad movie. (laughs) Um, Another reason could be uh, from his admiration of William Golding's novel Lord of the Flies, as this is where King got the uh, Castle Rock name in the first place. It's like a mountain fort in this story. In in Lord of the Flies? Yeah, so that's where King got the idea, and it may be just where – Rob Reiner got the idea because Rob Reiner's company also wound up producing the 1990 adaptation of that novel as well. Interesting. So he clearly is interested in King and Golding. So that's really cool. That is really cool. I did not know that. That's fascinating. (laughs) Anyway, another cool thing. He has openly said Stand By Me is his favorite movie that he's ever made, which is saying something because he's made a lot of really great movies. Yeah. I I really love Rob Reiner. (laughs) I kind of looks up the difference between the book and the movie because that's my name is Jordan. That's what I do. Yes. Uh, and there's really not a lot of differences. There are nope. a lot of like really minor differences, but um, apparently the book is much more graphic. Uh, there was the second story that uh, Gordy wrote. What was it? Like the stud or something or stud? Stud city. Stud city. Um, that wasn't in the movie. Um wasn't that like did you did you hear what that was about? I read up on it. Can you summarize it? Yeah, so it's basically about this boy who is like remembering that his brother died. You kind of realize as it goes on that what they're implying is that this this brother went off to get this job where he was killed to get away from his mom who is apparently like molesting him or either they're in some sort of weird relationship. Oh my and God. I'm like, that is not what I, <laughs> I must have read a different summary. That's not what I remember at all. All right. <laughs> yeah. I, ugh. yeah, it was very strange. It seems dark for Gordy, but not so dark for Stephen King, I suppose. Um, but anyway, really the only main difference is all four boys really do get beat up pretty badly at the end before yeah. um, someone pulls a gun. Uh, I don't know why I'm doing this. You're the one who read it. I I know I said I was going to. Unfortunately, that book is at my parents' house, and I do not want to go to my parents' house. I understand. So basically, yeah, that those are the couple of differences. The The idea was maybe to end it on a uh, – not I don't even know. Like not a necessarily positive note, but not such a beat-down note that these kids right. get their asses kicked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's really not many more differences that I can really think of that are major – other than yeah. setting it in Oregon for some reason. <laughs> I just want to say, if you're listening to this in the future, we are in the middle of COVID-19 right now. I don't want to go to my parents because I don't want to get them sick. I don't want them to get me sick. So I'm just doing self-isolation. That's why I did not read it. That's why I don't have the book with me. Um, 
Yeah, just to clear that up because I was like, because I don't really want to go to my parents. I want to go to my parents. <laughs> and then you started talking, and I was like, oh, hold on. <laughs> Um, yes, I love my parents very much. Of um, course. Anyway. I love your parents very much too. They're wonderful. If they are listening, do they listen to this? If they are listening, hi. They do. I, I miss you they, guys. They at least like the Facebook posts oh, well, when good. I share the episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's my like first little tidbit. You can continue on to your next point if you'd like. Basically, the idea of Castle Rock really interested me. Not necessarily the show. Um, because the show is more uh, using all of Stephen King's characters to kind of tell an adjacent story right. um, that he has little to nothing to really do with. So, th- I mean, that that's interesting on its own. I haven't seen it, but that's interesting on its own. But I like the idea that he has created Castle Rock as a place that a lot of his stories, you know, happen in or reference. And I just want to talk about Castle Rock a little bit. So Castle Rock first appeared uh, in the 1979 novel, The Dead Zone. Here's just a list of the stories, not even the ones that just reference. That's a whole nother list. But these are stories that actually like take place to some degree in Castle Rock. Uh, it grows on you from the collection Nightmare and Dreamscapes, obviously The Dead Zone, uh, Cujo, The Body, which is from different seasons, which has mm-hmm. got turned into Stand By Me, um, Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, which is also from different seasons and got turned into Shawshank Redemption, Uncle Otto's Truck and Miss, Mrs. Todd's Shortcut from the Skeleton Crew, The Dark Half, uh, The Sun Dog, which is a novella from Four Past Midnight, that's a collection, Needful Things, um, Premium Harmony, which is from The Bizarre of Bad Dreams, and that story is like so funny and so <laughs> devastating. Can I tell you what it's about? Sure. So these these people are just like driving to Walmart, right? And like I think he smokes and she's like really fat. And um <laughs> they're like arguing. They're they're like a couple. I think they're married and they're like a couple and they've got their dog with them. And um I think she's gotta go, she's gotta stop in this like convenience store to pick up something. I think it's like a like a gift for somebody. And <laughs> she goes in there and like has like a heart attack or something and dies. The paramedics come in and, you know, come get her and she dies. And he, he goes back and, uh, sees that his, they left the dog in the car and it died too. Oh my God. And then like what he's left thinking about is the fact that now he can smoke anywhere he wants and he doesn't have to deal with, uh, her yelling at him. And I'm like, Oh my God, what a fucked up story. But yeah, that's in Bizarre of Bad Dreams. I haven't read that in a while, but I thought that was that was like one of Have the you? first Stephen King books. I got that book and I was like, oh, this is really cool. Um, there's a couple more. There's Drunken Fireworks, which is also from the Bizarre of Bad Dreams. I don't remember what that one was about, but I think I have read it. Uh, and then uh, Gwendy's Button Box, which is the one that he wrote with Richard Chismar. Yes, I've read that one. It was entertaining. It was good. Well, good. And there's a sequel out that just recently came out. I think it's like Her Magic Feather or something. Yeah, and that that one just has a Stephen King forward. It, he, Richard Chismar just wrote that, right? Right, right. Yeah. And then um, Elevation has Castle Rock in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's not <laughs> – I, mean, I, I haven't read it. I just saw it on a list. That, is that correct? I would assume. <laughs> I, probably, yeah. I, okay. If someone said it was, I wouldn't be surprised. But um, gotcha. that's just not one of my favorites. Uh, but – this is sort of off topic, but speaking of his uh, short story collections, 
Night Shift. Have you read any of those? Night, I don't have Night Shift, no. Night Shift, once I'm finished mine, I think I have maybe like two stories left to read from Night Shift. Those are some pretty, pretty cool stories. Uh, I'll really? have to lend those to you, yeah. Um, I love that, yeah, please. For sure, for sure. Thank you very much. Uh, back to Castle Rock, I really just like the interconnectivity and the world building in King's stories. Like the fact that he's got these iconic fictional towns that he created in Maine is so interesting to me. You know, like Derry and Jerusalem's Lot. I love it when the stories reference other stories, and it's like completely feasible in this narrative when yeah. most of them take place like a couple hours away from each other. Like I'll post a picture of the map, but there's a map, and it shows you that like, you know, uh, they're they all have real locations, and they all have real distances from each other, and all that stuff. And I just thought that was really cool. And it's cool how I, <clears throat> he has like a a full encyclopedia of characters, even if they're I forget. I think it was uh, reading glasses, the podcast that I listened to about books. And they talked about how, if you're going to read a Stephen King book, you're going to get the backstory of every single character, no matter how minor or major, totally. like if there's mail getting delivered, you're going to know the history of that mailman and that kind of thing. Yes. And uh, it's like those minor characters and you hear, I, I follow a, a Stephen King Facebook uh, group and they're always bringing up like, oh, they have little like highlights in their in their books. They're like, oh my god, this character, like everyone knows this character. It sounds so familiar and that kind of thing. Um, it is really fascinating, and I think it's yeah. very impressive. Like that man's a genius. And you can look at, you can go online and find visual representations of how all the characters cross over, and it's yeah. straight up like a web. I mean, mm -hmm. it is nuts. Yeah. I wonder if if I were to ever meet Stephen King and I were to bring up like just a super minor character in a random book of his, if he would be able to like say, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so. I think he does. I, I do think you think he, he remembers probably, all the characters he writes? To me, probably. It's it's actually impressive because if you sit down with Stephen King, he definitely radiates like intelligence. You think that he's, you know, a, a smart guy, but he also seems very laid back, not somebody that mm -hmm. like has all of this shit going on in his mind at any given moment. But I do think that these characters mean enough to him and he talks about them so frequently mm -hmm. um, in interviews and things like that, that he has to. He has to remember at least a great deal of them. Um, That's so impressive to me. I would not be able to do that. That's because when you think about it, I mean, if he gives them backstories, he's thought a lot about them at one yeah. time in his life. And um, he always says that he doesn't really write a bunch of ideas down. He says that the good ideas will will stick in his head. Mm -hmm. It's like a filter, basically. If it, if it lasts in his head, then he'll know that that one was worth writing about. And continuing so if it were me if i were assigned the task to make a universe this big i would have like post-it notes everywhere in my studio or wherever i wrote absolutely and I would have like notes and everything but if he's away from those things like if he would still be able to reference those and I, I don't know i would love to believe that he could i think that'd be amazing but i don't know the guy but i'm giving him the credit i think he does so i have like one more little section and it, it's small but i definitely wanted to redeem myself from take two when i couldn't remember anybody who was in multiple stephen king adaptations oh yeah so I, I made a list you told me that you were doing this and i'm very eager to hear what you have to say okay so and this is like something i probably could have found online but like i went to a bunch of different places and consolidated this list so i'm jeez. Oh, i probably should have just copied something off google but i tried not to okay so kathy bates obviously is in Mis misery and dolores claiborne ed harris is in needful things creep show and the stand Tim Robbins is in Shawshank Redemption and Castle Rock. 
Drew Barrymore is in Firestarter and Cat's Eye. Morgan Freeman is in Shawshank Redemption and Dreamcatcher. Harry Dean Stanton is in Christine and the Green Mile. Thomas Jane is in Dreamcatcher, The Mist, and 1922. Sissy Spacek is in Carrie and Castle Rock. Rob Lowe is in The Stand in Salem's Lot. Gary Sinise is in The Stand in Green Mile. Jeffrey DeMunn is in Shawshank Redemption, The Mist, Green Mile, and Storm of the Century. Chosen Jacobs is in It Chapters 1, It Chapter 2, and Castle Rock. Bill Skarsgård is, is in It Chapter 1 and 2 and Castle Rock. Sam Jackson is in 1408 and Cell. And Martin Sheen is in The Dead Zone and Firestarter. God, this makes me want to read so many books. <laughs> I wish our minds were computers and I could just download all the things. There's just not enough time to read every single thing. Do you remember it was a television show and I can't remember what it was called. Maybe somebody can help me. It was about this family and they had taken in this kid he was also an alien and um, he could read books by like putting his hand over them and like sucking the information Bitch. out of them. And I cannot remember what the <laughs> hell it was called, but it was so cool to me when I was little. I want to do that. There was a show called Alex Mack and it was like a girl who could like, I guess she had superpowers and they were always going to try to come and experiment on her. TV was cool back then. That's not the one that had. My standards were a lot lower. I don't remember anything about it. No. Uh, for some reason, I remember, I don't know if it was a movie or a TV show, but it was um, like someone, it was a girl that was like, had a magnifying glass and she was kind of like this and she was kind of like looking down. Harriet at, the Spy? Was that it? No. I want to say it was, uh, no, 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 I'm saying, is that, she was like a Nickelodeon star or something. Um, I feel like Harriet the Spy is the one with a magnifying glass and then the hand. So when, yeah, when you brought that up, that's for some reason, that's the first thing I thought of. I'm sorry we got so off topic. It's okay. That's like You're the correct. name of the game is just trying to keep us fucking like going in the right direction. Michelle Trachtenberg. Yeah, yep. yeah. She's yep, on yep, Buffy. Yep. Oh my God. Her best freaking thing that she's ever done is on Buffy. I still need to watch that show. Like when, when Michelle Trachtenberg comes in, everybody's just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, if you guys have watched Buffy and you see Michelle Trachtenberg, you know what I'm talking about. Like, everybody's just like, well, who the hell is she? It's so good. I love it so much. This is also really off topic, but uh, our work just implemented this new, uh, like, list system to kind of keep track of projects and everything. And I love it. So I have, like, a million lists now that, I, that I'm, like, am keeping track of. And one of them is, like, TV shows. And there's, like, 10 TV shows on there. I'm never going to get to all of them. But uh, I will definitely add Buffy to Never say never. You're right. I mean, especially now. Who knows when this uh, quarantine's going to end. So, yeah. In Virginia, we just got um, stay-home orders until, like, fucking June. See – I think my mom told me this and was like, they basically said, don't leave unless it's essential work. Uh, you go out to get food or supplies or you just want fresh air. So it's like, don't leave your house unless you're hungry or you just want to leave your house. Like, that's, what the fuck? That's that's like what we've been doing. We have a whole coronavirus episode that we released we do. last week. So you should go listen to it. <laughs> I'm going to have this done by Friday. So this will be, it'll be earlier this week. Oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, you're yeah. right. There will be episode 14 of The Quick Takes is all about coronavirus. Not really. I mean, it's about movies. But <laughs> do you have anything else to say about 
I do. Stand by me. We'll get to it. I'm, I, do it to it, Lars. So, uh, you know the Duffer Brothers. For those who don't, uh, they created, directed, created the show Stranger Things. Yeah, they created and directed it. Yeah. Um, well, you know what? They write. They probably direct some of them. I don't know if they direct every episode. They might though. They have a very big hand in that show. Uh, they, yeah, they created it. Immensely popular show, Stranger Things, and they it's actually amazing. Sorry. Yeah, they had uh, the kids read lines from both Stranger Things and Stand by Me because they wanted to cast kids who were able to sort of relate in the same way that the kids did in Stand by Me, which I thought like that was really cool. And I got this from a video where, oh, who's the guy? Not Kevin James. He wears like a hockey jersey all the time and like a backwards hat. Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith. Uh, he actually interviewed Will Wheaton. He made your favorite movie. Sorry. What? Oh, fucking Tusk. Get that <laughs> shit out of here. <laughs> um, and he, yeah, he was interviewing Will Wheaton and this all came from that video. I'll link that in the, uh, the uh, information thing. I am so excited to see that. I love him. He has a show called Fat Man on Batman. <laughs> And it's like all about comic book stuff. I just adore that man. He does seem really, really cool. And, and he's made some good movies. He's made some bad movies too, but he's made some good movies. He just does what he wants to. He's just a cool guy. No, that's good. That's good. Um, I'm actually, I was hoping that you hadn't seen this because then you would have like taken all my research. But um, <laughs> Will. <laughs> so greedy. Will Wheaton actually knew River Phoenix before they started on the movie. They weren't really friends, but they, they he at least knew of River Phoenix um they lived down the block from each other they were like kind of neighbors and will knew them because quote they were the kids with the nature names (laughs) Uh, (laughs) they all yes all of the all of the phoenix kids have weird names so there's river and joaquin do you know the other ones let me look it up because i said that (laughs) now i'll i'll back it up hold on okay yeah so there's river rain liberty summer and joaquin there's just far too many children. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's really cool, though. That's 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 really awesome. Um, and it wasn't until you know this movie that they got you know closer acquainted, and they were actually very very close up until his unfortunate um, passing. Their relationship was like the strongest thing in the movie, just in my opinion. Agreed. Uh, and my last little bit. This probably should have been said in the beginning when we were talking about like how relatable this movie is. I really do think that like this whole theme of relatability is like the driving force to this movie i think it's it's sort of there's this balance that these boys are experiencing that is like right on the cusp of adulthood and like on one hand uh they want so eagerly to be respected as adults which i think a lot of us want when we're growing up like we don't we don't really understand like you know owning a house and taxes and that kind of stuff but we all want to be respected and treated as adults, I mean, it's we always want to be a part of the big kids' table. We want to go out with you know our older siblings and everything like that. Um, these kids, they swear, they smoke and play card games in their clubhouse. They talk about sex and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they're also being raised under these like super oppressive forces of adulthood. The 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 bullies that are you know they're the older reflection of themselves. Um, their older siblings, their abusive parents, uh, with also abusive pasts, uh, and then the obvious, the biggest force I think here is is death, and and coming to terms with that, and how that kind of affects your growing up and that kind of thing. I just thought that that was, I think that's sort of what made me fall in love with this movie is sort of realizing 
what truly these kids are experiencing and what they're going through and what they're chasing after, I guess. And it is something that I think we can all relate to. And I think that's what makes this movie so successful. So, Amen. I mean, and this is a, this is a great, a great situation where coming out of take two, I was bummed because you were like, nah, not my kind of movie. I don't like these characters. And then just through researching and I tell you guys, yes, this is the kind of thing. This is what, this is the narrative that we are driving home with this whole podcast is that coming out of a movie. Yes. You're allowed to have one opinion, but let it be flexible. Let yourself Mm -hmm experience um, other people's takes you can have an opinion in the beginning and it can change as you grow and as you learn different things and i hope that we you know if people were like "Mm, i'm not really into this movie i hope that we might help you look at it in a different way same with all of our movies you know that's why i wanted to start this with you is because like it's there is something so satisfying about like really getting to know a movie yeah that's i love doing this so thank you this is a great movie I really enjoyed this movie. I really enjoyed talking to you. I think we should jump into the recast. I'm very excited about this, but before we do, uh, we picked there should be just four. I did not cheat this time. Uh, mark your calendars. That's a it's a big accomplishment. Uh, but of the four, how many do you think we overlapped on? None. Really? Yes. Not a single one. Not a single one. Every time we play the recast game, I always hate it when there's child actors because there's like not a lot to pick from i think so this will be really interesting i'm, I'm very curious to see who you picked i would want like to go first? go first though oh god all right for gordy i know this is a cop-out but i feel like no other person could even be put in this situation to do a good job Jaden martell he played um <laughs> i knew you're gonna do that is bill it's so glaringly obvious it has to be him i I can't think of anyone else. Do you want to like alternate? Because now I'm really curious to know who you picked for. Glory. Nope. You go, you go first. You're Why? not going to like mine. Keep going. <laughs> Keep going. All right. Um, for Chris, I absolutely love this actor. I think he is downright adorable and amazing in what he does. Uh, he was in a quiet place. He is Noah Jupe. Yeah. He plays the brother in a quiet place. And I just think mm-hmm. he was like one of my favorites in that whole movie. He, he killed it. He was amazing. Teddy, you're also going to hate me for this. Uh, the the kind of like jokey, rough one, I guess. Finn Wolfhard. <laughs> like, I can't. I'm sorry. I, it's it's like, it's so obvious to me. I Like, I can't think of anyone. I'm dying to know what yours are because I don't know. Maybe there are two on the nose. But And Vern, I'm actually really excited about this one. Um, Ian Armitage who played Ziggy in Big Little Lies. And How old is he now? Plays young Sheldon. According to... I, let me even make sure that that's his name. That sounds right. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, he is... Oh, he's 11 years old. Oh, shit. I thought he, he was could older. be little. I thought he was older. Well, all It'll be a kids, while before these movies are made, so that's fine. Right, right. Well, I, in comparison to the other ones I picked, I think he's a little young. But to be fair, those are probably too old now at this point. Um, <laughs> but I think he needs to be bouncy and like innocent. And I feel like young Sheldon could could do that very easily. He's He's got that face. <laughs> I like him. He was really good on Big Little Lies, too. I really like that kid. All right. Hit me with yours. What? <laughs> okay. Why am I going to be upset with you? So I knew that you were going to immediately go to the the only child actors we really know. I mean, there's just only so many, and a lot of them are in it. Did and you pick 
like actors that are adults now is that why i'm gonna be pissed yes <laughs> that's fair i'll take that i'm not mad at that but here's the thing i am pitching a movie where these adult actors all of them are over 60 years old um, <laughs> oh, are no. playing these actual characters in the exact same roles i want these care these actors to not acknowledge their age still get bullied by like teenagers <laughs> and <sighs> nobody will but then at that point, it's a comedy. That's like Pen15. No, I want it to be 100% serious. It's not a comedy. No one would take that. These seriously. are titans of industry. Okay. All right. I'm gonna... All right. I'm listening. Chris would be Harrison Ford. Oh, my God. Uh, Tom Hanks would be Gordy. Tom Hanks would be Gordy. You're yeah, right. he would. Right. And he's, he's getting better, I think. So he'll be able to play it. I've not heard anything about him, but well, they're yeah. back in America. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so they, they're they're allowed. I'm sure they're still, you know, trying to self isolate like everybody. But I think that they've I think that they're okay now. Well, I, you know, at least they're still with us, which is really good. Harvey Keitel would play Teddy. <laughs> okay, I absolutely love Harvey Keitel, and I could totally see him being like a crazy kid. I want to have glasses on and everything. <laughs> Um, and then William Shatner will be Vern. Oh, no. I can't be mad at that. I like. I essentially want like a shot-for-shot shot remake just with these four. You can't tell me a single person would take that movie seriously, though. I would. All right. I'm a single person. All right. I can't imagine anybody wouldn't go see that. <laughs> it's like – you know how sometimes they have those movies where there's old guys, they like go to a casino for the weekend, they're having a good time, and that's the movie. You know what I mean? Like they they base the movie on like, oh, it's these four older guys, and they're like going out and they're having a great time. Have you ever seen those kinds of movies? Absolutely not. What movies are you talking about? Oh my god, there's like movies with like Morgan Freeman and it's just like four older guys and they're just having a weekend out and it's like but I mean, it seems to be like the popular thing for a while. They do it with older women as well. I feel like they they always kind of loop in something like, oh, they have to go rob a bank or, oh, they have to save their retirement well, maybe. or, oh, they have to like make a bucket list or something. Well, maybe they have to go see a dead body. But not as children. Are you just mad that my mind doesn't have Finn Wolfhard in it? Like every single list you ever make? That's not true. I don't remember, but it might be. Somebody will believe me out there that I said that. I think those are great choices. I don't think I would buy that movie if it were pitched to me, but who knows? It could be very successful. Well, thank God you're not a Hollywood executive <laughs> because you'd be missing out on thousands and thousands of dollars. <laughs> hey, it's Nick, and I know I'm supposed to say thanks for listening and tell you where to find more episodes and stuff, but first I have two things I want to mention. One is that I completely forgot to tell you guys that Teddy and Vern both die in the book. Uh, Teddy in a car crash and Vern in a fire, I think. I don't know, like, that's kind of half the cast. I feel like that's kind of important. I should have mentioned that. Sorry about that. Number two, also, if you hear dogs barking in this episode, I'm sorry. Like, don't get me wrong, I love dogs, but my neighbor's dogs, complete assholes. Anyway, uh, just Google Take 3 AMP, tell your friends tell your enemies, leave us a review, follow us on Instagram, wash your hands, buy our merchandise, you know the drill. Anyway, thanks for listening. Love you guys. Bye.